Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. We've never been at this point in history before where women are represented in the workforce. They're out learning men. They're actually more university graduates of females. So we're at an unprecedented time in our history and therefore we need an unprecedented approach to addressing the needs of business and women. There are many reasons why gender equality is good for our society, good for our workplaces. Something I'm certainly not an expert in. I do know that it can be very subtle and very hard to spot sometimes if you're in the middle of it. I also know that the impacts of it can be quite profound and quite deep. My guest for this week is Beck Brideson, and she knows all about the masculine focus in organisations and gender bias within organisations. She was one of a minority of women to become a creative director. She founded her own communications agency, and now she's an author and consultant helping organisations identify their own gender bias and tap into where they might be missing out on massive opportunities in the way they connect with and sell to women in particular. Women are becoming such a dominant part of the economy, making most of the purchasing decisions with pay levels uh, getting closer to equal levels, but still there being a gap. It's uh, becoming an area that many businesses blind to, and Beck is one of the people helping them open their eyes and see the potential. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you enjoy listening to Beck Brideson on the subtle disruption of the rise of women in the economy. Well, let's start. So first question is always, as you know, where have you chosen for our conversation and why have you chosen this place? Yes, so we are at Venus headquarters. Venus is my comms agency and it's the third office space that I've had running an agency and it's also the home of where I developed my consultancy which is beckbrideson.com. So this is the place where, this is the engine room I guess where it happens and we're sitting at the boardroom table of where a lot of my meetings take place. Yeah, so the third you said, is that right? Third office, yeah. Third office? Yep. Yep, and so those two businesses, how long have they both been around? So I started Venus Comms in 2004 yep. and I started my own consultancy in 2016. Okay, and why couldn't you do your own consultancy through Venus? Why did you need something separate? Separate. So it's a good question. Venus started its life as an agency, an advertising agency marketing to women And what I found through the journey of getting to the 10-year mark was that the notion of marketing to women was not as accepted as I had hoped or imagined it would be. So we've had some great successes through that sort of first 10-year period, but there seemed to be a resistance as well to the idea that we needed marketing to women rather than marketing to humans. And I saw that from a commercial perspective. We did really well with fashion and beauty and fast-moving consumer goods, 
but when it came to the categories like automotive and banking and finance, we were not necessarily seen as a contender. So I thought it was time to educate the market about the power of the female economy. And I felt the best way to do that was to go and become a specialist in gender, in the female economy, in the facts and the figures around it, which is a slightly different discipline to being a comms agency. So they both work beautifully and a lot of the IP in my consultancy has been developed in the agency. But what I found is a lot of clients saw me coming to them as an agency and said, we don't need an agency but they're more curious when I'm coming to them from a consultancy perspective around gender and the female economy. Yeah, wow. Interesting. Going back to those resistance that you found, what were some of those things in those different industries? How did that actually manifest? A lot of people think, well, we've got women. You know, we've got women working for us. We've got female marketers and uh, the marketing departments have, in many clients, businesses become female. Mm. So think, well, we've got women and we've got, and they're marketers, we've got more women in our business place than ever before. So we know women, we get women, yeah. yeah. So that's a myth that is around. And there's another, a fly in the ointment, I guess, which is the Equal Opportunities Act was around in the late 70s. We went through a couple of decades in the 80s, 90s and into 2000 where more and more women joined the workforce and people think, well, you know, we need to keep things equal. We can't discriminate between male and female because we really need to keep things equal and that has confused the definition and the opportunity to really harness the female market. So... The messaging that's come out of a lot of organisations has been, I guess, non-gender specific, theoretically. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Whereas there was an opportunity to kind of speak directly to all genders. That's right. So depending on what category, because non-gender specific in things like automotive banking, finance and certain categories, Mm. but obviously gender specific if you're selling female fashion or Mm. male fashion, then they understand their audience and who they're talking to. Yeah. So you started your own consultancy, I guess, to deal specifically with those things. Yes. And what did you need to go and do, I guess, as a person? To, you said you really immersed yourself in the data and understanding the female economy. Yeah. Yeah. What did that involve What did it you? look like? Yeah. So it started off with me going to the big advertising festival in Cannes in France, the south of France, and they have a big festival called the Cannes Lions, and that's every year after the big film festival. Right. So I went there, I pitched a keynote and it was about the disruption of marketing to women and how the advertising industry needed to change because they're not yet seeing a female opportunity. They're seeing through a very traditional and male lens when they are creating communications and market opportunities. Mm. So it started with me going and delivering that keynote and seeing, well, there were a lot of willing ears in that audience, but were they the ears of the big guys? Were they the holding companies and the big agencies? No. In fact, you know, they wouldn't have known whether I was there or not. They just weren't interested in the subject. Yeah. So that's when I thought I really need to 
prove this scientifically and prove it economically and study and research and create the argument for it because I knew it at a very practical level as a woman myself. I knew it as a advertising creative person that there were so many males writing ideas to sell products and services to females and that there was a disconnect in that moment. But still the advertising industry wasn't buying it. Uh, Marketers weren't necessarily buying it because, hang on, we've been selling cornflakes to women since the beginning of our brand and of our business history. Why do we need to specifically focus on women? So it's taken me a lot of research, proof, evidence, uh, fact-finding, and this data isn't necessarily readily available because back in the days when they invented market segmentation, gender was a sub-segment, not in itself a point to say, how should we segment the market? Let's separate males and females into their own piles because they think differently. They would take all sorts of factors into account, such as geography, religion, ethnicity, economic level. And so the idea of males and females being separated because of their behavioural differences has not been seen as a priority in marketing to them. Yeah. You mentioned that, I guess, a female focus now in marketing agencies a lot, but that things seem to be still done through male eyes or yeah, a male, male lens. A male lens, yeah. yeah. Is that coming from outside marketing departments or is that still within the marketing department itself? Like where is that originating from now? So marketers, like I said, a lot of people say we've got women in our marketing department so we must be okay. There's that side of the business. Then when you talk about the agency side of the business, there is still very much a male domination So if the marketer goes to the agency and says, we want to sell our product to women because we know that women are the decision makers, then the agency is likely going to have a heavily male-lensed creative department. So I was one of 3% of women in advertising to become a creative director. And that's the reason I started my agency is because I saw there was a real opportunity here to have an agency that really understood the audience, the market, which is women. And the the disconnect for me is that whether you're male or female, unless you purposely put on your female lens Mm. and really say, I'm starting at ground zero, I'm going to look at this specifically only through a female lens, we've all been taught through university, through school, through socialisation, through our business practice, to look at it through a traditional lens, which is a male lens, and not for any other reason other than that historically. It's history that we've all received. And so we're all operating through traditional male lenses currently, unless we really make that effort to say, I'm going to now look at life through the female lens. So there's the whole thing that when you're in a culture, it's very hard to actually recognise that you're in that culture. And when I'm in that frame and then all of us are in that frame, it's very hard to realise it. What sort of things, what can you talk about that will help me understand that I'm using that frame? You know, what should I be aware of? So I think something that's really current now and topical would be the Weinstein uncovering of seeing workplaces that had up until this time just taken that sort of harassment 
on rather than seeing that there is an opportunity to speak up and to voice that this is inappropriate behaviour. That is a really current symptom to me that we're a society in shift, that women are starting to say this old way of operating or behaving doesn't suit me now and I can use my voice and I can ask to be seen and heard and, and treated in a way that is more becoming to my needs. So does that help? Yeah. Explain it because it's like we've all taken those kind of jokes or maybe it's gone beyond a joke and it's actually become an invasion of personal space and values and women have in the past put up with that and now I think we're in this whole new world where Time magazine has named Silence Breaking Person of the Year Mm. And we are being given permission to find a voice and to say, actually, we've got a different way of wanting to be treated and approached and have our needs seen and understood. Yeah. That's the whole Me Too campaign that you've been talking about there. Yeah. And I use that carefully because there's one thing I am aware that happens a lot. When you say the word gender, it's such a big word and it gets mistaken as issues around sexuality gender identification, about unconscious bias. There are all kinds of words that get loaded into gender. Yeah. But what I'm talking about when I say gender is the commercial opportunity to better meet the needs of a female economy. Yeah. And so a lot of people just assume that I am a big capital F feminist and that I'm fighting for women's rights. And whilst I believe they're all good things to do, it's not my business purpose. My business purpose is to say who's spending the majority of the income in families and how can we better serve their needs and make business more money via doing that. Yeah. And I want to come back to that. Let me ask this question first. In doing that, what do you think the impacts will be more broadly than that? Do you think about the impact that your business is having? That's your purpose. That's your direct purpose to serve the needs of women, yes, enable businesses to make more money essentially doing yes. that. Do you see some second-order consequences to that within the economy as um, well, the society? I don't other than greasing the wheels of commerce in a really positive way yeah. because we are creating products that are better meeting the needs of the decision makers and the people using them. And I see in doing that we can get rid of a lot of waste. We can create products that better for the world, that when we start to understand what matters to women and does that mean that mass production and cheap labour and some of those really awful things that have come with hyper-consumerism have ruined the world, then we are understanding what women are looking for in products and services and we're better able to meet those needs and that can have some really great consequences socially. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see it differently? No, no. I, I was curious because the work that you're doing is, as you're mentioning, it's part of a bigger trend or bigger movement that's happening within our culture at the moment. Mm. But it's also targeting a specific part of that and shifting it in this way. And I think in doing that, there is going to be some hopefully really positive side benefits, but I haven't really thought through what they were. So, yeah. yeah. I also think that... It's by no means saying we should devalue the contribution of men 
at all. I think what's starting to happen is more workplaces are realising that men are valuable parents as well. And so if we can give men equal and shared responsibility of parenting, then it's a great effect for everyone, for kids, for families, for workplaces to understand both mother and father is important. Yeah. And when we look at the economics of women and see that 75% of women will be making the discretionary spending decisions in the home mm. within the next decade. Yeah. I don't think that's something to shy away or fear because it is the way things are. Women are the CEO of their homes and this may change over that decade as more and more businesses help men to become fathers as well as professionals. Mm by allowing them time off, by allow, speaking about family and creating the environment where it's okay to be a parent as well as a professional. And that's good for men and it's good for women. And so, again, it's good for everyone. Yeah. So it's really just understanding who's making those decisions and how do we better sell to them. Yeah. So when you go into an organisation and they ask you to come in, first of all, I'd be interested to hear what's the context within which you usually are invited into an organisation first? So some people will have heard of what I'm talking about and ask me to come in and give the broader staff an understanding of what a male and female lens looks like and start to create the picture of how things could be. And that could be anything from viewing the organisation and its internal operations and checking that in terms of gender there's no unconscious bias going on. And... It's also in saying, let's take a look at who our external customer is and auditing them and saying, how are we going? Do we have enough of the female market? If they are our dominant consumer in this category, do we have enough of them? And if we don't, let's start to turn over every stone and look at, is this the reason why? Is this the reason why? And often you will find that there is an unconscious bias within the business, even if they've had the training and the company has had a wake-up call to this kind of thing, there's still an overt gender within a business. It still feels the touch points, the logo, the way it looks and feels and operates, the way they choose to spend their away day, the dominant culture within that business or organisation might feel really heavily male and they've got a female audience external to the business, but they don't seem able to create the empathy or the products or the needs that meet their external audience. And therefore, they're getting a read on the product they're putting out, which is male-lensed. So it's helping them to see there's nothing wrong with having male and female lenses. It's just making sure you've got the right lens at the right time, at the right cycle in your business to reach the right audience. What would an unconscious bias look like? How would you identify that inside an organisation? What does it look like? So a couple of examples, and I had these in my agencies. We were brought in as Venus Comms to help talk to a female audience that were being ignored or that weren't being recognised. So come and create a dialogue with them, help to create education and awareness. And so we'd go in and work on a, a project and use our strategic tools and methodology to do that. And then the idea would get through the marketing department and any other department it needed to and then go up to the board level or the top execs who would be all male or maybe, you know, have one female and the rest would be male. And it would be 
misunderstood and not recognised and male-lensed at that point and mm. then rejected. So if the culture isn't aligned all the way through, and especially from the top, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Catalyst and Ernst & Young and Boston Consulting Group, they've all got studies showing that greater diversity with gender at the top of the tree, it's that trickle-down effect. It is we recognise the value of having diverse perspectives and diverse gender perspectives at the very top. Yeah. And where that exists, you have a greater profit and return as a business because you're getting that diversity in perspective. Yeah, right. Does that answer unconscious bias? Yeah, it does. I guess what I'm fascinated by was when you come into an organisation and you start to talk about this stuff and start to make observations, I suppose, you kind of see how meetings are structured or you interview some people. How do you, where's your favourite place to start in rebalancing that or correcting that? So I've got a scale that I work with and I call it gender unaware on one end and gender unaware or not thinking about gender and I call it out thinking on the other end and there are five stages in between. What was the other end, sorry? Out thinking. Out thinking, yeah. And when most organisations call me in, they are at rethinking. So they've got one or two staff members who have maybe heard or intuited this themselves that gender could be a real game changer for them. So when... I start at that rethink. There's already a few people who have converted to that way of understanding and thinking. And then the process is once we identify where there's potential opportunity and where there's potential things holding us back, how do we go about course correcting and fixing or innovating to maximise that opportunity that we see with the female market? Yeah. And what would be an example of a course correction? Can you give us an example? Um, well, this hasn't happened, but I wish it would happen. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it's a favourite example that I use at the moment because I, what I mentioned to goes, yeah, why haven't we done that? Yeah. And it's with automotive. And the first thing any new mother or new father will do when they're going shopping to buy the baby pram is think, will it fit in the boot of our car? And it's a new time. Everyone knows that parenthood changes you forever, and especially as a consumer, because suddenly going, right, now it's not just the two of us we're buying for. We're now buying for someone that we don't even know yet, and we've got so many things to integrate into our family life. Yeah. So the pram it goes into the boot and you test it and decide whether you're going to buy that pram or not. Now, manufacturing in Australia with cars has obviously not worked out so well for us. And we tried putting more drink cups in our cars to try to talk to women's needs. Mum driving the family taxi, let's put some more drink holders in there. (laughs) Didn't really solve it. But what if someone had thought, let's build a pram that goes with a family car or the other thing is the baby carrier because the big panic moment is I have to put this tiny human in my car what if cars actually came with those parts that fit the car already yeah what if Volvo had done this because being the safest car on the road 
What if you had a Volvo pram? There's been all of this innovation and ergonomic design around the pram, mm. but we haven't incorporated that into the very vehicle that we move our babies around in. Yeah. So that to me is an example of if you sat around a boardroom with a group of women and said, how can we make this journey from non-parent to parent even better. Like, what are the things that you really worry about? Now let's go and solve those things that you're really worried about. Yeah. That would fold this opportunity. Yeah. And then imagine that Holden had done that. The pram, the baby transport that comes with your new car. They would be selling more cars. We would be manufacturing. Exporting. Exporting, yeah. 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 So let's go back to Holden, say... 10 years ago, who you are now. And then there's been one or two of those people that have intuited that if we kind of reoriented our thinking here, we could be uncovering a big opportunity. How would you work with them to create an environment where that kind of thinking can occur? Could happen, yeah. yeah. I'd start by looking internally first and saying, you know, who are our engineers? Who are our product development people? who are our marketers, who are our research partners and have a look at everyone and make sure we pull a diverse team in, diverse gender, diverse culturally and say how do we get a fresh set of eyes working on old problems. Then I'd do research with consumers in a whole new way starting at ground zero, a different approach to the car clinic where they have people come in and it's an unbadged car and they'd look at all the normal features and their comments. I'd say... I'd sensitise them to an environment and say, you people here are about to have a baby. Tell me, what are you doing? What is your exact emotional state? What is your rational state and how are you thinking about everything that you're buying? Mm. And we would observe and create together and we'd put the customer at the centre of our business needs and have, I guess, the depth of understanding and experience and knowledge to maybe the customer can't come up with this themselves, but they can certainly tell you in a really intimate environment what are their concerns and problems, then we would say, how can we meet those? How can we fill the gap? What are the needs you've got that we're not seeing? And that's where the magic happens. Mm, Yeah. I guess you could do all that awesome research, but if the filter it's seen within isn't adjusted, then the same outcomes are probably going to be put up. Yeah, and I've always had this perspective that there's no problem that we can't solve. We just need to talk about what are the problems or the gap or the bits where we're not being served and there's always going to be a solution to it. It's that we have not been trained in business to think that the solution can come via insights which are gendered, which come with this whole new territory we're in where women are juggling careers, families, a different space. We've never been at this point in history before where women are represented in the workforce. They're out learning men. They're actually more university graduates of females. So we're at an unprecedented time in our history. And therefore we need an unprecedented approach to addressing the needs of business and women. Yeah. I'm interested if you could tell us a bit more about how the trends with females in the economy and what that might look like over the next 10 and 20 years as well. You mentioned a little bit of it there and also, you know, you said 
75% of discretionary spending is going to be paid by females as well. Yeah. What Can you paint a picture for us of what yeah. it's going to look like? So if you look back to, say, the last 200 years, when including the time where women weren't allowed to vote, their economic survival was very much based upon being in a traditional relationship with a male who had money and could work and the woman stayed at home and the man went out to work and she looked after the admin within the home. Then bringing the 60s when the advent of birth control meant that women could say, well, actually, I'm going to stay in the workplace a little longer. I'm not going to have children. By the way, when women went on maternity leave, they rarely went back into the workforce. So through that time, women went through this whole new world where they could say, well, I'm not having children until I'm ready here. And at that point, there was things like the Equal Opportunities Act. Women went into independence mode and in in terms of their earning capacity, they may not have earned as much as their male counterparts, but they still had an income and were also responsible for their family's income. So they went from survival to independence and now that women are en masse in the workforce, basically the decision makers for what's coming in and out of their front doors of the home they are influencers, so females as consumers are the influencer. And even if, let's say, her partner is going out to do the grocery shopping, she has still said, we buy Heinz tomato sauce, we buy Huggies nappies. These are the brands that come into our home. Yeah. And, of course, they'll try on new things, but they are pretty much the gatekeepers of the brands that exist in the home and they get passed down from generation to generation. All women will decide that's what works for us and our family and our growing family and the different needs that we have. So some figures around certain categories. Over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, women are responsible for 90% of them, for 80% of car purchases, and it's 60-plus for new car purchases. Yeah, right. It's significant, yeah. 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 They are influencing 80% of the banking decisions that are made in the home. So she will go and do the research and say, here are the so two for a home loan or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Here are the two we're going to land on and then it'll be a joint decision. Holiday travel, it's 80 plus percent being driven by females. FMCG, it's roughly 80%. Furniture and furnishings, 80%. So, look, I think it's trending. It's going to stay on that sort of projected figure that Ernst & Young have said of 75%. I think we're going to see a really big spike over the next 10 years of that being the case. And then as it becomes more common that men are equally parenting, it'll start to even out again. Yeah. Yeah. You're predicting there might be a sharing of the influence yes. around those kind of decisions, those purchasing decisions. Yes, yeah. as women carrying less of that load alone. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. The other fascinating thing there is the gender parity. So Ernst & Young have a countdown on their website. It's called Future Forward Women. And the countdown when it first launched on International Women's Day was at 115 years until we reached gender parity. Then last year it went to 170 years. This year it went to 215 years. So whilst we are talking about the empowerment of women and all of these great things that are starting to happen and starting to land in our corporate and social worlds, 
we're still going backwards. Yeah. Incidentally, what are the reasons for it going backwards at the moment? Uh, look, I don't know. I've just heard the theories on things such as, you know, there's an expected blowback on women as they become more empowered. It's almost like a zeitgeist of, well, there's a feeling that we're going to overtake or squash the patriarchy or that we're getting too big and great in our influence. There's a theory that Donald Trump and that kind of administration where women are having decisions that would once empower them, having them taken away is part of that. And I guess I've heard the theory that things get worse before they get better. It's like a pimple that's getting really angry and then it'll explode and things will normalise again. Yeah. (laughs) There's been a lot of, it's come across my feeds of my conversations a little bit recently around this idea of you know mental load that women seem to carry more in the household more than men did you say your wife before my sorry did you mention your wife before no i didn't no, do that no. okay, okay. <laughs> yeah um why were you gonna yeah. oh, because i was just going mental load right it's a common couple discussion that i've heard of yeah yeah well i haven't had that discussion but i'm aware of it i suppose what that actually means I guess it's putting a name to something that I've experienced. Yes. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I think what you're suggesting is that business is going to play a role in helping men, I guess, take on a share of that and start to adopt that way of thinking and realising the contribution that they can make to their own families as well. Yes, absolutely. And also smart business will see that there's a really big opportunity to reduce mental load for women because time poverty is the biggest driver of them being prepared to switch brands, change products, spend more money even. If you can save me time, I am there. I'm ready to say I'll do that. And there's a great example, which is a group of farmers in Queensland who were looking for a way to reduce their stock waste. And when carrots grow and are too bent or too ugly to sell in supermarkets, they would have to throw that carrot out as stock feed and they'd sell it at $50 a tonne. And the solution they found was actually when they got their wives together, one was an accountant, a teacher, a marketer, and a lawyer, and they said, you know, what could we do? How could we make life easier for you? And they all agreed that the lunchtime or the morning preparation for school lunchbox Mm. is incredibly testing and trying. So what if you could reduce the time of peeling carrots and slicing and dicing and cutting and cubing and all of that into pre-prepared snack size already done for you? And they agreed, yeah, that would be fantastic. So they invested in the infrastructure to make that happen. And they now sell those carrots that were for 50 a tonne, for 500 a tonne. (laughs) So innovating in that way to save time has been incredibly profitable. So imagine you put that lens and that sort of thinking onto every business and there's opportunity waiting. Yeah. Save them time, create a better relationship because you're actually seeing their needs Mm. and providing solutions it's like thank you for seeing me and acknowledging me and understanding that there is so much mental load that even those few seconds you're saving me is so valuable I'm going to create a relationship with your business and your brand and I'm going to make a commitment to helping you because you're helping me yeah yeah a lot of these things you've actually written about as well in your book that's just come out yes. called Blind Spot. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Blind Spots. Yep. Blind Spots. Mm. Sorry, yes. 
Is there any key takeaways that we haven't talked about from your book that you'd like to bring up as well? I guess it is on the opportunity to create that relationship and I use an analogy and it's really simple and it's quite girly or female but I talk about when women feel ignored by your brand or your product or your service, they ignore you back. So you're sort of not on the radar or they purposely don't look at you. And then when you start to say, well, maybe there's an opportunity for us to better serve and understand women, and you create and design a product specifically talking to her or with her needs in mind, then they start to notice you and flirt with you. I would say flirting would be, they'll say, well, I'm going to look out for you when I see you. Yeah. When I'm walking down the shopping aisle or when I'm out and about doing my things or when I'm thinking about where to take my kids for entertainment over holidays, then they start dating you and that's where they have a transaction with you. And if you deliver, then they think, okay, this is a relationship worth being in because I'm getting something back for it. I'm being seen and recognised and noticed and having my needs met. And then eventually they'll get to a point of saying, well, actually, this brand is the only one for me. I'm not even going to look at anyone else. I'm no longer in shopping around in that category for anyone. Yeah. This brand is the brand and I'm loyally committed to that. And everyone knows the business adage that it's easier to keep a customer than acquire one. Yeah. So then that's when you're what I referred to before, outsyncing your competition mm -hmm. because you have this loyal and ongoing committed relationship with the female customer who is the influencer. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Just for people, how can they get a hold of your book as well? What's the best way? So it's in airport bookstores in the business section there. It's in the business section of Demix and sort of the big retailers. It's not in independence or it's on the online stores like Amazon and Booktopia. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I've got two more questions for you sure. before we wrap up. The first one is about something that you're not currently involved with that you'd like to be part of disrupting or subtly disrupting one day? Is there something that when you think, next, I'm getting onto that? I guess you've already mentioned one with Volvos and uh, car seats. But yeah. yeah, that's right. But is there something that you kind of daydream about sometimes and you think, yeah, why doesn't someone just tackle that thing over there? Well, I guess automotive is a big one, but probably travel, airline travel. There are a lot of times when I think no one is recognising how I feel, you know, my space is invaded or there's all these business travellers, these men in suits and I'm a short female and they just don't even register that I'm here. It's like being invisible. So to, when you're walking onto a plane, you're yeah, talking about? or waiting at the baggage carousel or yeah. fight for the armrest. I'm so <laughs> determined to be on the window seat because, you know, these guys, these big guys sit in the seat and the, it's like you're not there or you don't matter. Yeah. So putting some space, I mean, that's not necessarily a gender thing, although when I'm business travelling it often feels that way. Yeah. And there's all sorts of things for me around education because I feel that's a point where we can really influence the next generation by not just putting specifically male-lensed history in front of them. So being part of re-educating the kinds of books and case studies and the way we write the future history to incorporate more women because I remember being very cognizant as a child and going well when we learn the bible there's God and there's Jesus and there's all the male disciples 
can't see it be it. Yeah. And there's Shakespeare and there's Dickens and all of the artists. I did art history for three or four years, classical civilization. They're all male heroes and characters. Mm. And I just took that on as, well, there's no females doing any of this. But I imagine a different world when you teach both males and females about both genders. Yeah. 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 Cool. The second question is about yourself, actually, and a small change that you've made in the way you work or in your own life in some way that's Mm -hmm. had a really significant or important impact. It might be an ongoing impact. Yeah. It would be interesting for other people to hear about something small that's had a big... I would say it's around... I used to be a big night owl and do a big eight-hour day and then break for dinner and then put in another couple of hours at the end of the day. But when children came along and we have to settle them and my kids didn't see me because I was straight back to work. So it was kind of like this one hour in the morning and two hours in the evening that I'd see them. I realised that if I wanted to write a book, I'd be sort of compromising a lot of that time that I could have with them. So I hacked my bedtime routine with them and I would go to bed with them. My husband would sleep in whichever room was free and I would read them a story, go to sleep with them and then get up at five o'clock. Oh, wow. And so I would have to myself uninterrupted time between 5 and 7 a.m. writing. Yeah. And what I found, because I didn't drink anymore and I had such fun going to sleep, reading my kids a book and then having a laugh with them before we went to sleep. And then in the morning I'd wake up so fresh and I'd have two hours of uninterrupted time to, like, put my thoughts down. And so by the time they would wake up for school, I was in this great mood. I was awake already. There was no hangover. There was nothing. It was just like, wow, this is a really actually healthy life. Yeah. And, of course, date night with my husband becomes something to look forward to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So now you've finished writing the book. How's the read? change. Well, I kept that up for some time and it's just been now that the school holidays have come on that the kids are now staying up late, so I'm a little out of routine, but it's kind of fun having broken that for a while, but I think definitely when school goes back next year, I'll be back to that kind of regime because it works. (laughs) Thanks, so good to chat with you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.